0: and enjoy. Hey guys, how you doing? Well, I guess we already had some introduction so far. Thank you. So, welcome to our Skylight Reading Books. Uh, great to have everybody here. We'll have our four readers tonight. I think first up is me, Nick, and then we'll have um, we gonna have Jill, uh, Lynn, and Jenny reading. Um, as always, maybe just a reminder to um, if you don't mind, please silence you're turning off your cell phones. Um, and our next reading and final reading of the year will be down in our Irvine on, I think it's um, May 27th, I think, that Wednesday. But anything else? No, uh, I think that's all. Not too much. OK, well, thank you then. So I'll uh, we'll have our first introducer. So it's going to be uh, Lynn, introduce Nick. OK, thank you. <laughs>
1: Um, so I have the pleasure of introducing our first reader, poet Nicholas Rayner. Um, start off with some brief facts about Nick. Nick went to Stanford, is a sports writer, he was in a commercial, and in high school worked at a grocery store by the name of Top Banana. <laughs> Nick's poems present a rigorous empathy, not only as the perspective through which his speakers recognize others, but as the matter through which they demonstrate faith in the people they illuminate. His voice follows loss, disorientation, and false revelation with a sterling clarity and integrity that untangles the crystalline pain of what it is to be alone. A line from Nick's poem states, to be gazed at, even incidentally, is a wonder. With Nick providing this kind and deliberate gaze, we are pointed towards the poignancies that might otherwise have shimmered out of sight. Please join me in welcoming Nicholas (laughs) Rayner.
0: Hello. 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 How is everybody? Good. So, uh, I'm going to read eight poems today. Uh, Many of these have been written this year in my first year at the MFA program. This one's called Breakfast Rituals. After our morning walk, my grandpa cooks bacon and eggs, tells me about when his nephew died. Eddie was 33, a ruptured brain aneurysm at four in the morning. He was in a coma at Long Beach Memorial for a time. Over the span of many hours, family and friends filed in and out of his hospital room, a conveyor belt of loved ones squeezing Eddie's hand, placing their arm on him, looking stern and struck down. My grandpa, 83 at the time, filed in and out too. Probably he took off his hat, maybe bent over slightly, talked to the man upstairs. The oil around the bacon starts to bubble and the eggs are almost ready in the other pan. I lean against the kitchen wall and listen to him tell it. One girl in the line, one of Eddie's friends, he says, was crying her heart out. See, he says, everybody else was silent. Everybody else had their heads down. She was crying for people who cannot cry, he says, looking at me. Some people cannot cry, or they cry alone, he goes on, not looking at the eggs. Crying is one thing, he says, but sad crying is another. "'So sad like that,' he motions, turning the bacon over with the tongs. "'Then he really looks into me with his brown eyes that I won't forget now or ever. "'And I thought maybe she's crying for me too,' he says, hand-gripping the spatula. "'I fold the paper towel on the counter so he can put the four pieces of bacon down, "'and I use the napkin to stamp out the sizzling bubbles, the juices.' This one's called Real Growth. It's a, it's a prose poem. Uh, I've been working on some prose poems with some people in this program this year, so it's been fun. Real Growth. It was a bit overcast that day. My brother Joe had just finished his tennis match, beat the kid from Orange Lutheran in 6-2, 6-4. I was in the stands clapping for him while chewing on my cheddar cheese popcorn. Joe wiped the sweat off his face with his blue shirt and went to put his Wilson racket in his bag. It happened without warning, as all shocking events do. His legs elongated quickly, lifting the rest of his body like he was on an escalator at the mall. His arms extended outward from his sides, making the racket he held look like a ping-pong paddle. His head grew proportionally, too, and it appeared to swivel right to left as it enlarged. Somehow, his clothes and shoes remained the right size. Within seven seconds, Joe was ten feet tall, and everybody on the court turned to look. I dropped my popcorn and started running down the stairs towards him. I reached him and for some reason jumped up to give him a high five. Joe towered over me. We're going to go get in and out, he asked. I don't know how we're going to get you in the car, I said. I don't know either, he said. Well, we'll figure it out. We walked across the soccer field, and he picked leaves off the ash trees well above me. I half half expected him to eat them, like a giraffe. I felt bad for thinking he was a giraffe. People stared as we walked by, and I desired more than anything to make him invisible. Joe carried his bag with his right hand and looked over everyone as he walked. This one's called Final Flight. At Six Flags Magic Mountain for my ninth birthday, the highlight was Dive Devil with my dad, just me and him. Strapped into a harness, the slim cable raised slowly 152 feet above the ground. We said Hail Marys and held hands on the way up to the tower. Remained at the crest for seven seconds until the operator said calmly over the loudspeaker, Three, two, one, fly. My dad pulled the lever to release us free-falling toward the ground at a peak speed of 60 miles per hour, lifted skyward just before the concrete, swinging up and down three, four, five more times, each swing smaller than the previous. On the video, his throaty yell drowns out my boyish screams, and they get louder, more terrified and joyous as we approach the ground. He dies six months later in Griffith Park because the helicopter, tail rotor broken, descended clipped two trees, and barreled into the grass on its side, face downward. This one's called St. Cleo. This is also a prose poem. My parents bought a dog one month before I was born. They named her Nicholas's Queen Cleopatra, a long Rhodesian Ridgeback, Cleo for short. During my childhood, she was as much a part of the house as my parents. My youngest sister was most enamored with her. When my dad died, I wonder if Cleo knew something was up. Surely the house must have smelled different, felt quieter. She must have missed his deep voice. Years later, Cleo developed cancer in her lower body. She was 15 in human years. Unable to walk, she'd whine and drag herself across the concrete, her sinewy back straining and dipping, My dad's birthday was coming up. My mom decided to try and save Cleo because of the time of year and for my sister. The procedure was successful, costly. After the surgery, Cleo lasted less than a year before she was put down. If only he did not die suddenly. We would have paid a hefty sum to have a year more with him. We lodged this longing into Cleo. We petted her and fed her, and she responded the way a good dog does, with open eyes, wet tongue, and a busy tail. Some dogs are heroes because they rescue people. All love until the end. Cleo held shreds of memories of a dead person. Cleo was just a dog in those last nine months. We saved her. We said goodbye to her. Cleo went to heaven after she died. My dad was there to welcome her. He looked at her run and shouted, good girl. God thought about making her a saint. Can't have too many, he chuckled. Down on earth, as we buried her, we thought of how we saved her how we said goodbye, how we'd never forget her bark, her gait, our dad. This one's called the fruit market boss. So, yeah. After all these years... She still wakes up for Granny Smith apples, for bananas straight out of brown boxes, for nectarines, it's summer, for plums, for apricots, for pluots, for seeded watermelon, for clementines, for packaged star fruit near the register, but with a chronic cough, against pancreatic cancer, for peaches, to painkillers in the back room, for strawberries and cantaloupe, to hello from Maria, for Hawaiian papaya, to how's it going from Pablo, for bags of cherries, to you look good today from Janet. For pink ladies, for red delicious, for plantains, with a bad limp, for blueberries, a worse prognosis, for honeydew, for another day among fruit, always fresh, never rotting. Alright, this is the final prose poem. Before the hospital. On my walk home from intro to psychology, the idea solidified in my mind. I am a prophet. During class, I'd scribbled in my blue notebook about my place in the world, talking inwardly inwardly to myself. I am a prophet. No, you are not a prophet. Yes, you are a prophet. But you just can't tell anybody you are, for a prophet has to be humble. God doesn't want you to speak of your being a prophet. I decided earlier in the week I'd be writing a book that would change the world. I wouldn't put my name on it, I'd pass it around like a resistance pamphlet and pretend I'd found it on a table in the dining hall. Nowhere in or on the book would it say the author's name. I was unsure of what my role as prophet would require, but I knew this was part of it. Later, after I had stopped going to class, I hung a rosary around my neck. I cried uncontrollably, overcome with a grief that was ecstasy. I told my roommate, I know how Frodo Baggins felt as he carried the ring into Mordor. I slept little over those days and filled my notebook much of which, while illegible and nonsensical now, was divinely rendered then. It's called The Runner. Second to last one. Thanks for listening. My psych one professor told us how on the first day of his hospital residency, he saw two patients duke it out in the common room because each believed himself to be Jesus. I imagine the heated argument. No, I'm the son of God. Who do you think you are? Listen to me now. You need to believe in me. And then the fists, maybe, and a kick and the restraints. And then I remember how crazy I thought everybody in the hospital was. Luz would tell us which number life we were on and how the halo around my head looked bright today. The other Nick from San Jose, who was in there for the seventh time, pacing up and down the halls with his hands on his head, uncovering a CIA plot. Art, who noiselessly stared straight ahead all day, lying on his bed, the scar on his throat thick, glowing red while his wife read to him on her knees. And then I remember I was Spider-Man, could shoot webs from my palms, that I was a prophet, though God told me not to tell anybody, that we were going to the NBA if we tried hard enough. Who I really was, though. The guy who bolted from the hospital waiting room at 4.30 in the morning sprinted halfway through the parking lot before the cops wrestled me to the ground, handcuffed me while I shouted, nothing's wrong with me. Stop. Nothing's wrong with me. Alright, this is the last one. Thanks, everybody. Hypethros. The garden in the middle of the hospital's locked ward fielded skylight all day. We could go out there for an hour each afternoon to walk I'd step into the garden my mind splayed it was a joy to walk outside even if it was still walking inside still not leaving I'd step lightly on well cut grass touch yellow flowers smell mid afternoon air Vitruvius wrote of the Hepithril opening how the center of a temple could be roofless open to the king of the gods thank you
2: Now, I have the pleasure of introducing Jill Kato. Jill is a first year student in fiction at Irvine. She has been pre- published in the Three Penny Review and the New Ohio Review. She's originally from Huntington Beach and actually likes Irvine. <laughs> she says she doesn't mind the low crime, clean streets, strip malls, and mediocre pizza. Good for you. <laughs> She, she says she's so honored to be in this program and to be associated with all of you talented folks, and we are so honored to hear you read.
3: <laughs> Hi, everyone. Um, I'm going to read a short story called um, The Oldest Girl Called Nancy. Salvador is my friend, but daddy says Salvador is not my friend because Salvador is daddy's hire worker, and daddy says no one is my friend truly if daddy gives him an envelope full of money on Fridays. But Salvador saves a piece of sugary bread for me when his wife Rosalia makes it up at home and hands it to me in the yard when daddy's not looking. Salvador puts out his big hand, and in his big hand is that sugary bread wrapped in his red bandana, or sometimes it's his blue bandana, depending on whichever one is not wrapped around my my friend Salvador's neck. Roy Rombauer is a big boy, and he lives across the street, and he has four sisters that are the loudest. His daddy works at the record store in town, so they always have something good spinning around on their player. I wish I had a player like Roy Rombauer and those loudest sisters, or at least a radio to all myself so I can listen to Gunsmoke and the Cisco Kid, and even to Little Richard, because Mama and her friends say he's so indecent. On Saturday, I play with the tin cars that Roy Rombauer gave to me because because he's a big boy and doesn't play with little kid toys anymore. Mama doesn't like that I play with the cars because she says, I'm not a boy. I'm not a boy, I say, but I'm a tomboy. And what's wrong with that? Mama says I shouldn't have a smart mouth and that I should listen to her. But it doesn't make sense to me because having a smart mouth seems like something one would want to have. I line Roy Rombauer's tin cars against the edge of the living room carpet and then fling them with all my might across the long, shiny floor in the hall. The cars are rubbing up their engines, and I make the engine noises to match. Keep it down, Daddy yells from inside the living room. I pull back my arm and then fling my fastest racer down the hall. I must not have let go of my fastest racer at just the right time, because it goes smack right against the wall. If there were a real man inside my tin car, he'd be as dead as dead can be. So I make all the crashing and explosion noises to match. "'Judith Marie, what did I say? Why don't you listen?' I hear Daddy say. I crawl on my knees from the hallway into the living room where the top part of Daddy is hidden by a newspaper. "'Yes, Daddy,' I say. He lowers the newspaper when he hears my voice pop in the room. "'Judith Marie, did you hear me?' "'Daddy, I said yes, Daddy. I'm listening,' I say, and then crawl back on my knees to my tin cars.' When Daddy tells me I'm playing with my tin cars too loud and that he's told me for the last time not to leave them in the middle of the floor or he can step on them and break his neck. And when Daddy tells me I never listen and to stop getting in Mama's hair, I go across the road and lean my back against Roy Rombauer's fence to listen to the player through those windows of his house. One day Daddy says I'm really not listening because he told me for the last time to stop leaving my grubby tennis shoes by the back door steps so where he can trip on them and break his neck so I go out to play with Sissy which is Daddy's dog I put my grubby sneakers on my feet and my tin cars in my pockets because despite what Daddy says I'm really not trying to break his neck Daddy's dog's name is Sissy and the county's as big as a pony and afraid of pretty much everything there is even his own shadow according to Daddy But Sissy doesn't want to play. He just wants to sleep in his doghouse that's big enough to fit me, Roy Rombauer, and at least two of those loud sisters all at the same time. So I go back in the house and get in Mama's hair again, and she gives me a grape jelly sandwich because Mama says she's all out of peanut butter and the grape is my favorite part anyway. I give the sandwich back to her on account it still has the crust. I don't like the crust, and I don't think it's good for you, like Mama says. I guess that comment made me really get into mama's hair because next she's telling me she doesn't have time to cut off the crust because she's got to go to the salon to get her hair done for the week. So I go across to the Rombauer fence with my grape sandwich with a crust still on to listen to the player because even though the Rombauer is left in their yellow station wagon with Roy in his baseball uniform and cleats, I know the oldest sister is still at home because I seen her waving goodbye to them in her dressing robe and a pink handkerchief to her face. The oldest girls call called Nancy, and she'd be pretty if she weren't so loud. I like her the least of all the Rombauers, and not just because she plays that no-good classical music when it's her turn. I like her the least because she comes by with her mama and some of the ladies from the Crossroads United Church to collect me and my mama on Sundays. Daddy and mama says I have to go, but I don't like it one bit. So that's why I like the oldest girl, Nancy, the least. But I go over with my grape sandwich anyway, because no good classical music is better than sitting out back with big old sissy who just sleeps. I almost missed Daddy at the Round back door, because I'd already finished my grape sandwich, even with a crust, and I was getting tired of leaning against a fence, waiting to hear something good. I was getting ready to go home and see if I could get that big old ses- sissy to fitch- fetch a stick or something else the dog is supposed to do when I hear the side gate open and see Daddy walk on through. Daddy doesn't know I'm, be- I'm back there behind the fence because the Rombowers live on the corner and Daddy goes walking through the gate that opens at the front side, which is the wrong side of me. The no-good classical music the Nancy is playing stops and I see her open the side door right before Daddy even knocks, like she's expecting him or something. Daddy spins his watch on his wrist like he always does. Mama says one day he might accidentally unscrew his whole arm, and the way he's going at it, I think he just might. What's this all about, he says. The oldest girl called Nancy starts to cry, but not just cry, but whine, whine, wail, like the time I accidentally slammed the Chevy door on my thumb. Well, how, would, how did you think this would turn out, Daddy asks, over Nancy's loud crying. But she just cries and cries, and Daddy steps forward like he might try to hug her or something. But then the Nancy girl says really loud, But you said, but you said, over and over, and in between her hiccups and loud sobbing. Daddy takes a step back. I don't know how you thought this would turn out, Daddy says again. And he takes another step back and twists his watch some more. This is way better than listening to that no-good classical music because the loud oldest Nancy, who I like the least, is getting really loud at Daddy. But I love you, she says, as she fiddles with her necklace that I can't see, but I know is a cross. We can't, says Daddy. We can't, she says. We can't, says Daddy. Daddy and Nancy are standing at the Rombar side door for the longest time. That Nancy's leaning up against a doorframe in her dressing robe, and Daddy stands there with his arms folded and looking down like he's trying to find roly polies in the grass. They stand and they stand. They stand there for so long, I start to get bored. I'm so bored, I start licking the grape jelly off my fingers and begin to wish that no good classical music were back on because all they're doing is standing, and who wants to watch that? How can you not cry? Nancy asked Daddy. She pulls that pink handkerchief from her pocket of her dressing robe and blows her nose like a horn. Daddy twists his watch. I think this is getting good. As good as what listening to Little Richard must be like. And I try to see what's going on between the splinter fence. But then Salvador in his red bandana dries up and ruins the show. Salvador drives along the side of the road where I'm sitting with grape jelly fingers. Salvador yells, what you doing? Real loud through the window of his truck. And I put my finger to my lips and say, shh, real loud on account of his engine truck being so loud and I have to get loud over it. Daddy must have been scared off by Salvador's loud truck or my loud shushing because he runs back home and I don't get to listen any more to what happens. Salvador shoes me in his truck, and I go in because Salvador is my friend, and even though my house is right there, he takes me home and tells me I should stop listening where I'm not supposed to. Thank you.
0: Okay, so uh, I have the distinct pleasure of introducing Lynn Wang. Lynn is a second-year poet in the UCI MFA program and is originally from Southern California. Lynn's voice is distinctive and singular, and her poems are wrought with might and care. When I read Lynn's poems, I want to show them to people, to everyone. I usually just shake my head and marvel. One in particular, entitled The Happiness, by turns devastating and glorious, is my favorite, and I return to it often. She is a compassionate, kind reader as well. You're in for such a treat. Lin Wang, everyone.
1: Um, so I'll be reading seven poems, and these first three poems are from a project that I did for a medieval nature seminar. And they're inspired by the medieval bestiaries, which are compilations of entries that describe individual animals, but in like really allegorical, sort of Christian moralizing ways. Um, And the animals that I chose to write about, or write from their perspectives rather, are the swallow, nightingale, and newt. My first poem is called The Swallow's Doctrine. And there's an epigraph, it reads, It is not the prey of any other animal. It has foresight because it goes out to fall and does not seek the heights. Isidore of Seville, Etymologies, Book 12, 770. I know you, devout one, your inviolability crumpling into rubble like your mouth at the end of prayer. Child, milk and water grace will never grant power of flight. Ask as you are tying yourself to supplication who is holding the other end of the string. Take it from me. Only ask for shelter when you have a chance to escape it. Nightingale. Human, you would tell me to sing to death if the dawn were ever held from you. Order me, sing, bird, for I cannot be alone in the dark much longer. Killjoy, Does nothing in my art move you? My silver song hooked like a cat's nail in the sky's blank upholstery, tenderest felt in the graves of night. Tell me again, as the breath leaves my lungs a last time, to die for your comfort, to be the ecstasy in the world without ever feeling it myself. Newt. We are what you chosen children would be without your God, thin-skinned, belly-crawling, lightless in the mud. Do not turn your nose at us, for you too will find yourself forsaken. One day he will sweep the dirt off his knees and rub his temples as he walks away. When the lamp of heaven is clicked off to your kind, come and see us. Count your stars on our pied backs. Only after praying to them know that they were poison. And this poem is from my Punchline series, and it is two refrigerators talking to each other. (laughs) Punchline. Five refrigerators are strapped together into the bed of a truck. It's a long drive to the dump, so they get to talking. One asks, Why are you here? to another on the left. My handle broke, it says, and there was a better fridge out there. I think they had their eye on that better fridge for a while, and the broken handle just gave them a reason to get rid of me. What about you? I was owned by a man and a woman. They were at a point where neither could bear to speak to the other. The man turned to drink and the woman to food. One night, the man, upon seeing the woman stand in front of me, taking even small comfort in the little I could give, decided that I, as a sterile monolith of his failings and pain, could no longer live in his kitchen. (laughs) What about that guy? Broken handle gestures towards the fridge nearest the driver's seat. Oh, that one's dead, replies, object of jealousy. (laughs) Do we know anything about him? Not really. Well, why not? How could it possibly matter? It's dead as dead is dead, and we're in our way to be dead. Of course it matters, broken handle, surprise and feeling the violence of surging grief. It has to matter, all of it, all of us. For fuck's sake, what are we if not the importance we assign our lives, our decisions, our loves, our losses? We're breakable things and must have some unbreakable spirit to carry us through our sad, dispensable existences. Broken handle sobs, a low, open hum, like a head being held too long underwater. The others are uncomfortable from this flagrant show and feign sleep for the rest of the drive. Thousands of miles away in the snow, a man unclips a dead dog from his sled and continues to make good time. Naval gazing. A man on the corner is pumping his sign, Jesus loves you, has life for you, swinging the blue thunderstorm of his head, pretending not to see me, pretending not to see the impiety of the night, trafficking around him, slick and hot as a hemorrhage. I love you, sign man. You do good work, and you would get first dibs into heaven if it were up to me. I love you too, he ventriloquizes through the smoke filling my mouth. We're two cosmic constants, you with a glossy ear held to the radio silence of the universe, waiting for the go-ahead, and I'll forever be here, wrapped up in a man I can't love, like the way I love you, sign man, but this poem isn't about you. Happiness. When the happiness trembles off the boat, we gather around to greet him, our hopeful weight threatening the black ice buffing the lake. He is aged from coming to this kind of cold. A woman sobs in gratitude. It's been so long, slaps her face hard and taut as a berry before her son picks her off her knees. The happiness shuffles between the two lines we've made, bobbing a frail, spotty head in recognition of his worshippers. It is good to see you all, he wheezes. I'm willing to make some proper arrangements. One man holding a can of kerosene douses the man next to him and holds out a match as the happiness nears. I'll do anything, just stay. The happiness shrugs and the man lights the other up. Some of us roll the broiling man in snow to save him, then push him into the lake. The happiness sneaks off, limply calling his goodbyes. His boat slushes back into the night and are whispers of, Was that even? And we cry and cry because we know it was. My last poem is addressed to Anna Pavlova, who is a prima ballerina known for her frail and delicate style of dancing. Um, She also has a dessert named after her. That's how you know you've made it. Um, Her most famous role is that of the dying swan. And there's a little epigraph here. She refused the operation, saying, if I can't dance, then I'd rather be dead. She died of pleurisy three weeks short of her 50th birthday. Birthday letter to Anna Pavlova. You immortalized dying swan, flickering your high-lin arms high above you. Of course you did not fear death. You lived and died on stage. Your soul, a gossamer, snapped and tied back together each time the swan finally collapsed. Oh, Anna, how did you make frailty your virtuosity? Those tiny, chattering feet hiding the command in your stride. I am 25 years full of stumbling, sheepish life, fearfully waiting for the curtain to fall. How should beauty come to a weak fool? And sometimes, Anna, I think all I've ever wanted was to be beautiful, to be loved like you were, a sedated crowd at your show the night after you died, watching the spotlight shine a finger to where you would have danced. Thank you.
3: Uh, now it's my pleasure to introduce Jenny Milton. Jenny is a second-year fiction writer in the programs in writing at Irvine. She grew up in Rochester, New York, attended Connecticut College, and was a visiting student at Oxford University. After completing her B.A. in English and Music, she moved to New York City, where she was a closeted writer who worked in publishing until she received a phone call from Michelle Ladiolet. In her final year at Irvine, she'll be the fiction editor of Faultline um, while uh, polishing her collection of stories and maybe expanding one of them into a novel. Um, Jenny will be reading from a short piece titled Beasts of Burden um, and the first part of a short story called Haunted. Um, I've had the pleasure of reading these wonderful pieces and, of course, her work throughout this year in workshop. Um, For me, what's most striking about Jenny Milton's fiction um, is not just the beautifully crafted prose and great inventory or that the sentences flow so flawlessly um, from one to the next. It's that their approach to fiction can only be described as brave. She has the courage and skill to go there uh, where lesser writers might turn and look away. She goes to such dark psychological depths, such grotesque details about illness in the body. Um, it's enough to make you have a physical reaction to her work. <laughs> um, it's been an honor to be with Jenny at the table, and it's my pleasure to introduce her tonight. So without further ado, the brave and beautiful Jenny Milton. <laughs>
2: Thanks. That was really sweet. Um, Okay. So, um, oh, I'll move this up. Thanks. (laughs) Um, Okay, so this is Beast of Burden. This is just a really short uh, two and a half pages, and then I'll get to Haunted. Um, She finds the kittens in the hallway in a box just to the right of the door on the morning that she moves into her apartment in Crown Heights. The apartment is in one of the last rent-controlled buildings left in the neighborhood, or so her broker has said. She believes him, though. She is in love with this building. It is pre-war, faded brick and cracked freezes, beautiful. And besides, he has helped her find all three of her apartments, first the five-bedroom loft in Bushwick with a painter, a photographer, a dancer, and a poet, all men, most of them gay, and they made less money than she did, so she took the only room with a closet. Then, the three bedroom and bedsty, where she moved with the poet turned marketing assistant and the dancer who is actually making it. Finally, she can afford to live alone. She has dragged her suitcase up the four flights of scuffed marble stairs, unable to stop smiling. She has planned out already where to set up her walnut writing desk and antique her great-grandmother's. It will now sit proudly under the largest window in this apartment in the living room where the previous tenants had placed plushy ottomans of various shapes and sizes. The kittens in their cardboard box mule and wail. The box is tall, the kind that an analog TV would fit in, but the kittens scramble weakly up the sides of it anyway, searching for a way out. She hasn't met the couple who lived here before. She only walked through their fussily furnished living room, kitchen, bedroom, and ensuite bathroom. The ottomans, the imitation oriental rugs, the heavy dark drapes over the windows, the pink and red lamps with tassels swinging down from the shades. And the tassels did swing, madly, when the A-train hundreds of feet below rumbled by. Funny, she doesn't remember seeing evidence of cats. No clumps of hair on the rugs, no ragged edges on the sofa, no beige carpeted cat tree, no food or water bowls, no litter box. She has always wondered what kind of people abandon animals in this way, packing up, leaving, maybe taking the mother cat now spayed with them, don't forget to leave the kittens outside the door. Did they think their neighbors would come by and scoop each kitten up one by one? Or maybe they just figured the kittens would be her problem, like the ornery toilet or the cupboards that had been installed backwards, or the front gas burner that never worked. Welcome home. She lets go of her suitcase. It is filled with her laptop, her best pens and notebooks, and her first edition books, the only things she couldn't entrust to the movers. She used several scarves to wrap the books, put the pens in Ziploc baggies in case they burst. She bends over the box, notices now that there is a scrap of lined paper, its frayed edges scotch-taped to one of the flaps of the box, and on the paper in blue cursive is the word, kittens. She laughs. How absurd. To take time to spell this out in prim handwriting as though the kittens would otherwise be mistaken for snakes. There are six of them, one light gray, one dark gray, one brown, two striped orange, and one white. The white one is the smallest and has a patch of black fur over its left eye. Their yellow eyes gleam up at her, their tattered whiskers askew. She unlocks the apartment door, having trouble getting the key in, turning it the wrong way, then turning it the right way, toward the door frame instead of away from it. She discovers that she has to pull the doorknob toward her while simultaneously pushing the door in with her knee. She is familiar with these cold solid doors and their old locks. There is always a trick, a rhythm of twisting, pushing, pulling, her body against the door like a lover. She lifts the box and carries it inside, then retrieves her suitcase from the hallway, wedges it between the door and its frame. The movers will be here soon. She wonders if the couple has left anything else behind, labelled so she would know what it was. She opens all of the backwards cupboards, the drawers, the refrigerator, everything creaking, but no, there is nothing else, just the kittens, who are mewling again, worried she's forgotten them. She could run down to the bodega across the street, pick up some tuna and milk, or she could introduce herself to one of her neighbors on the fourth floor, ask them for scraps tell them she's just moved in down the hall and she's taking up a collection. Her first time living alone and already, she is the crazy cat lady of the building. And it's true, yes, that sometimes she prefers the company of her writing desk and a glass of Cabernet Sauvignon to the company of men. She moves back toward the box, reaches down to lift the little one with white fur and a patch over its eye. Though she is tiny, this kitten, she is the loudest of the litter. Such a cruel word, she has always thought. The same word for rotting apple cores or cigarette butts. The same word for a box that houses buried cat turds and clumps of hardened urine. The more obsolete usage denoting a bed of straw and dung. But still, there was a more modern formulation of litter as bed, right up into the late 19th century. A sort of couch shrouded in curtains, used to transport the sick or wounded, carried on men's shoulders or by beasts of burden. That phrase she remembers distinctly, beasts of burden. She holds the smallest kitten, strokes its fur, feels its wiry body begin to relax against her chest, feels its claws seize and then release the fabric of her shirt. Little pirate, she says, welcome home. Sorry. Okay, and then this last one is Haunted, um, the first five pages or so um, of a short story. It's happened again. This time it's in my room and I'm going to leave everything the way I found it, like a crime scene. What happened was I woke up to find that the mirror from my vanity, actually Nana's vanity, which became my vanity when she got moved to the nursing home, had been snapped off and had somehow managed to flip and then fall mirror side up onto the floor in front of the vanity. The mirror must have done this soundlessly because I am a very light sleeper. What's more, absolutely nothing except the mirror has been disturbed on the vanity table itself, and believe me, there is a lot to disturb on that table. Bottles of cucumber melon and vanilla sugar and sweet pea lotion, bottles of glitter glue, bottles of glitter body gel, bottles of nail polish, hair ties, candy wrappers, pens, pencils, markers, notebooks, and my beanie babies, which are all lined up nice and even along where the mirror used to be. This does not seem like it should be physically possible because it isn't. The mirror, face up on the floor beside my bed, seems to wink at me, and I tell myself that it's just the reflection of the sunlight glinting on its miraculously unbroken surface. I get up and carefully step over the mirror and lean over the vanity, examining the wooden stubs that once held the mirror in place. The dark rosewood was not sawed through, it was snapped as if a giant had reached his hand in through my bedroom window while I slept and wiggled the mirror back and forth and back and forth until it surrendered. There are some splinters of wood on the floor on either side of the vanity and near the mirror, but other than that, this was a quick, clean errand and a line of many uprooted and upended objects in this house. All that's missing is the yellow police line do not cross tape. They might not have that at the Ace Hardware down the road, but they probably have, at the very least, its cousin. Yellow caution tape, which I will buy, because I'm 11 as of last Sunday, and because now I'm old enough to babysit for the Clellan's three kids in diapers next door, and because I made sure to get certified with the Red Cross for first aid on the Monday afternoon following my birthday so that I could march over the driveway and up the steps to tell Anya Clellan the good news. Being certified for first aid is a job qualification if you want to babysit for the Clellins. They have a bunch of teenage babysitters, but none of those girls live right next door to them like I do. This is my turf now. Anya Clellan booked my new first aid capable hands for that very same evening. And this was the best birthday gift ever, even though I did get plenty of actual presents. Almost all the books on my list from my mom and dad, my friends, even my brother, Isaac, who wants everyone to call him Zach now, which I think has something to do with the beard that he's trying to grow, half-hearted stubble that's thickest on the left side of his chin and above the left half of his lip, a shadow of a beard lopsided. I once caught him using my mom's mascara to try to bolster the other side. On my birthday, Mom picked up Nana from the nursing home and brought her to our house so she could give me a gift, too. But her gift doesn't really count because she'd wrapped up a sweaty pair of her socks and handed them to me. And Mom, in one smooth, swooping gesture, bent down and whispered, Say thank you, Carmen. Good. Now give Nana a kiss on the cheek. And then she took the socks and threw them in the wash. Anya and Rob Cleland are both doctors who have somehow managed to pay off their med school debt and raise triplets, or so my mom says as she sips the cheap coffee that she hates, but buys anyway because someone has to save up for our college funds. She winces the coffee down morning, afternoon, and night, and peers out of our kitchen window into the Cullen's kitchen, where they are gathered around their own table Eating pancakes with organic syrup or freshly cut berries and honeydew or the greenest salad with the brightest heirloom tomatoes you have ever seen. So, it's happened again. And now I'm old enough to have my own wages. Forty dollars for two hours, Anya Cleland does not skimp. I slide my feet into the clogs that are beginning to squeeze my toes. I pretend not to notice. I try not to think about the new sneakers, cobalt blue, which have been sitting in their box at the back of my closet for months. When I tried them on in the store, I ran around, I zigzagged, I jumped. They were the most comfortable shoes I'd ever worn and my mother laughed with the store clerk, asked if I wanted to wear them home. I hid them in my closet long before the house began hurling things. I turned to my bedroom door. I have to hold onto the doorknob with both hands and lean back, use my whole weight to get it open. The wood of the doors swells in summer, which makes it difficult to open them without stripping off chips of paint. The wood shrinks back in winter. It's only the beginning of spring now, but already I feel the doors resisting. They're all heavy mahogany, the original doors, but the people who owned the house before my parents painted those doors avocado green. They used oil-based paint. My mother explained how she and my father painted coat upon coat of white paint after they realized that the green had soaked deep into the wood, making it impossible to restore the doors to their natural beauty but no matter how many coats they painted, the green still bled through, stubborn. The green looks black now beneath the layers of white. I hurry downstairs through the front hall and into the kitchen. I let myself out the back door, which opens into the garage. The car is gone. Mom must be out getting groceries at Walmart. I hope she doesn't buy apples from there. They taste like dirt. I close the back door gently behind me, even though no one is listening. I press the button to open the garage door and it heaves and creaks and winds the whole way up. I walk down the driveway to the sidewalk, following it to the end of my winding block. Meadow Lane, it's called. I wish there was an actual meadow here, but all anybody seems to be able to grow are dried up rose bushes and hedges and yellowed lawns because we had a very harsh winter and the grass around here is weak-witted. The Ace Hardware is only a 10-minute walk down Gelden Avenue, which is one of the busiest, noisiest streets in town, and I love it. I love the smoky-sweet exhaust fumes and the acrid burnt rubber, smells that linger in your nose long after you've returned home. I love the look of all the markets with their cascades of bright, round fruit, and the checkered turquoise storefront of Clancy's Diner, and Abe's Car Wash and the Kilwins Ice Cream Shop. I love the sound of cars backfiring or tearing down the street or honking their horns at a red light. My mom often sighs that I'm not cut out for suburbia, that I'll grow up to be one of those girls who puts up with roaches and mice and immature men who shiver at the sound of of the word commitment, who puts up with these things just to say that I live in New York or San Francisco or Chicago or D.C. because those are the only real cities in this country. When she recites this speech, her voice always sounds wistful to me, which makes me wonder if maybe she was one of those girls who lived with roaches and mice and commitment-shy men in a city. I try asking her sometimes, but she clams up and asks me, have I dusted the bookshelves? Have I tidied my closet? Are there clothes that don't fit? She's a social worker, works mainly with troubled kids, and she has Isaac and me collect the clothes we've outgrown in plastic bags so she can donate them. I wonder if she ever gives any of them to those kids. I hope she does, even though that probably crosses some boundary that she has to maintain between herself and her cases. That's what she calls them. Mr. Baldwin, the man behind the counter at Ace Hardware, smiles as I walk in. The The store smells of tobacco and disinfectant. My mom is always complaining about how they smoke inside, and that's a violation of practically every labor law known to man. She gets worked up about it, I think, because Isaac works there three weeknights and most weekend mornings. She's not so much worried that he'll pick up the habit. We both know that she'd end us for even thinking about taking one drag. She's more concerned that the secondhand smoke will destroy her son's lungs before he even graduates from high school. Carmen, what can I do you for? says Mr. Baldwin. I don't like the way he says my name, but then again, I hate the way it sounds when anyone says my name. It's the kind of name you grow into, not out of, my mother says. I doubt I'll ever feel like a Carmen. I'm not sure I want to feel like a Carmen, whatever that might feel like. Drinking coffee, making lists of repairs the house needs on post-it notes that end up crumpled in the trash. Drinking coffee arguing with my husband about whether new sneakers for my daughter are more important than whiskey, drinking coffee, trying to hide my bloodshot eyes and the dried tear tracks down my cheeks, drinking coffee. Maybe I'm just focusing on all of the negative things about being an adult. I do like having my own money. That feels very carminy. A roll of yellow caution tape, please, I say. You got months before Halloween comes, says Mr. Baldwin. I like to be prepared, I say. And I realize as these words tumble out of my mouth that this is exactly the kind of thing a Carmen would say. I feel tingles down my spine all the way to my scrunched together toes. Mr. Baldwin leaves the counter and walks down aisle 4 for the tape. When he returns to ring when he returns to ring it up, I tell him I don't need a bag or a receipt. He takes my money, gives me change and drops the roll of yellow tape into my outstretched palm. Out of the corner of my eye, I see Isaac rearranging saws on one of the metal pegboard walls with many, many holes for many, many tools. His shift will be over soon, but I won't wait around. We have a pact that we will not acknowledge one another in public except in the event of the zombie apocalypse, in which case we should stick together. He says, I'm pretty smart, so with my brains and his brute force, we'd probably survive.